Lord Almighty, we come before You because You are great. And we worship You. Thank You for bringing us here tonight. Thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can come to You. Thank You, Holy Spirit, that You interpret our prayers back to You, Lord, so that You will hear us. And God, I pray that now we would hear You. Speak through me. Speak through Your Word so that we will be effective at hearing and obeying, trusting what You have promised and obeying what You have commanded so that we will be the men and women of God You have created for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. In November 1978, 50 boys tried out for a total of 15 varsity spots and 15 junior varsity spots on a North Carolina high school basketball team. There were 10 returning seniors who were coming back to the team. So in reality, on the varsity squad, there were five spots open. Four of those went to the four returning juniors, and one of those went to a sophomore, six-foot-seven-inch Leroy Smith. The coaches all together agreed to put a talented and hardworking but five-foot-ten-inch sophomore on the JV team where they knew he would get more playing time and not just simply ride the bench for the year. In 2009, at his NBA Hall of Fame induction, Michael Jordan continued to nurse that 30-year-old wound. And he, again, on a national stage, criticized his high school coach, Pop Herring, along with a bunch of other real and imagined slights. On the stage where he should have been thanking those who gave him one of the most remarkable sports careers in the history of the world. Instead, he celebrated his bitterness. And this bitterness worked its cancerous fruit and caused him to spew vile instead. In fact, Sports Illustrated Thomas Luke said of him, Jordan would become a world-class collector of emotional wounds, a champion grudge holder. Now, this grudge holding may have fueled his rocket ship fame to glory, but he obviously didn't enjoy it. Forgiveness is a decision about the future, not a feeling about the past. Now look, I don't want to throw Michael Jordan under the bus because I know I have nursed my own grudges and I have licked my own wounds when I should have simply moved on trusting God's promises to take care of everything. Nevertheless, this is a classic example of what happens when we allow a root of bitterness to grow and strangle us from the inside out. Last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 12. Strive for peace. Work for peace. Agonize 
Put all your effort into getting peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by this trouble, many become defiled, including those who should have been thanked on the national stage instead of hearing vile spewed out. Last week we discovered that lemon trees have roots that will destroy 20 feet of yard. Bitterness has roots that will destroy 20 years of life. Sever that root of bitterness. Decision is a de- forgiveness is a decision about the future, not a feeling about the past. Tonight I want to finish our very short series on forgiveness as we are taking this break from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I want to ask three questions. Can you hate the sin and love the sinner? Is that something you really can do? And then I want to ask question number two. What if the other person won't be forgiven? And then thirdly, the question I put off last week several times, why must I forgive? Let's look at the first question. Can you hate the sin and love the sinner? I ask this question because it seems to be the very basic prerequisite that we all need before we can begin down this path of forgiveness. And the answer, frankly, is a simple one. Can you hate the sin and love the sinner? The answer is you do it all the time of yourself. Lewis comments on this in his chapter on forgiveness and mere Christianity. He says, I noticed that however much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the way in which we hate those things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man or woman or child should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be, catch this, I love this, cured and made human again. But in this culture in which we live right now, loving yourself has been taken as an inalienable right. No matter what you've done, you have the right to feel good about yourself. That's hogwash, by the way. 
And let's look at the passage that has given cause for much misunderstanding and consternation in this regard and find out exactly what is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Notice in this passage, the command is not to love yourself. The command is to love your neighbor as you already do love yourself. He he just kind of figures that you're going to love yourself. And there's good reason for that because all of us do. As C.S. Lewis said, the fact, the reason why I hated these things was because I loved this guy. In fact, that's why with regards to forgiveness, Lewis points out that as easy it is is for me to forgive myself, we ought to forgive those who give us occasion to hold a grudge. Ouch. If you aren't feeling a little ting about right there, you're not listening. We are commanded to forgive the people who have harmed us just as easy as we are willing to forgive ourselves. When you and I contemplate what it will mean to love the sinner and hate the sin, we need to understand that this love has nothing whatsoever to do with thinking well of the person. Oh, they're really a good person anyway. This is a lie that our society has chosen to believe to its own destruction. Mothers of murderers claiming that their sons are good boys is just absurd. Understandable but grossly wrong, and it should be pointed out by our culture how wrong they are. Not everyone is a quote-unquote good person. And yet, and yet, we are commanded to love those not good persons. Amen? And that begins with forgiving them. And this can only happen, we can only love them and forgive them when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to remember that forgiveness is a decision about the future, not a feeling about the past. You and I can, you and I must love the sinner and hate the sin. This is a large part of what it means to forgive. But then the second question comes into play. And the second question is huge in many lives. In fact, I have been reminded in the last two weeks how many lives this has come about in because I have been told by some of you. What if the other person won't be forgiven? And and I'm going to confess right off the top, this is a tougher question than the first one, which is why I answered the first question first. This is a tougher question because there are many reasons why it could be true that this person won't be forgiven. Perhaps the person who needs to be forgiven is dead. How do you forgive that person? 
Perhaps the person who needs to be forgiven is a violent criminal and your safety in approaching them would be compromised. Perhaps the person doesn't know that they have harmed you and further harm would come if they did. Perhaps you don't know who it was who harmed you. Perhaps the person is in some authority over you and you must simply soldier on. That has happened, I would wager, to every single person sitting in this room. In all of these cases, and I'm sure you can think of more, the following command applies. Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, it is not always possible to live at peace with everyone. As we said last week, forgiveness is not a guarantee of reconciliation. Forgiveness is the one-way street of obedience to God, and reconciliation is a two-way street where the other person responds in like manner and you have reconciliation. But fortunately for us, if that is the position we are indeed in, and we must forgive without reconciliation. Paul gives us a whole passage to consider. Now, I'm going to read it, but there's a whole sermon just here. Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as is often the case, there are promises Promises that we can take to the bank. Promises that we can with confidence base our life on that are related to obedience to the various commands in this passage. In this case, the promises are God will take care of all debts. There is no debt that ultimately will remain outstanding. Secondly, He will take care of you even if you need to suffer And three, the third promise, is that evil can be overcome by good. My friends, that is a promise that you can take to the bank and you can know God will take care of this. I don't have to hold on to my pain and bring it close to me forever. Praise Jesus! Think about this. This is powerful stuff that meets you right where you are, wherever you are. Take a moment to reflect on the fact that these promises are yours right now. 
even as you remember whatever horrible thing has happened to you. Take a moment to reflect on the fact that these promises were yours when you were being harmed by those that you now need to forgive. And take a moment to reflect on the fact that these promises will be true forever. When you are one day not only saved from the penalty of sin, as everyone who trusts the promises of God for you in Christ have been already, not only when you have been saved from the power of sin, which we who trust those promises are continually being saved from now, but also in the presence, when we will be saved from the presence of sin, that one day when all harm, when all pain will be but a distant, dreamy kind of memory. In the meantime, while those pains are not a dreamy memory, but a nightmare, we need to obey what Jesus says in Matthew 5.43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Time out. By the way, remember last week, that's exactly what I told you. Pray for your enemies. You have begun this process of forgiveness when you can say, Lord, bless this person. I can't do this on my own, but I need you to bless them. And bless me too, Lord, so that I can bless them. That is the beginning. That is the start of this process of forgiveness. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God blesses them all the time. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in this consideration, that perfection comes when you understand that forgiveness is a decision about the future, not a feeling about the past. If your neighbor won't be forgiven, then treat that debt as it should be treated between you and Jesus. And He's already paid the debt. Everything that needs to be paid. Amen? Now here's the one I've been saving. Because this is the one, this is the one that hits close to home. Why must I forgive? Let's look at why. Matthew 8.21 Then Peter came up to him, to Jesus, and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Hey, as many as seven times? Trying to make himself look good? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or in other translations, 70 times seven. Paul, Peter wanted to make himself look good. And Jesus said, look, it's not about math. It's not about numbers. It's about a heart. Verse 23. 
Jesus starts in on a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And note what Jesus says here. Out of pity, not out of hope that he might someday get his cash back, but out of pity. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of all that debt. Now, listen, 10,000 talents of gold is more than the entire province of Judah owed Rome for a decade. Let, let that sink into your head for a second. Take the entire province of Judah and think about how much they have to pay in taxes to Rome. Times that by a decade and that still doesn't equal 10,000 talents of gold. The number that Jesus is pulling out of the hat here isn't even a real number in normal economics. There is no one who can come up with this kind of cash. The point of it is that there's no way it could possibly ever be repaid. So, the guy walks off scot-free. All the debt has been wiped away. Man, you got to be thinking, Woo! Life is good! Can you believe? I just got that all off my back. I'm feeling pretty good. Let's see what happens. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Wait, didn't I just read that a moment ago? But this time he refused and went and had him put in prison until he should pay the debt. 100 denarii is roughly three months worth of wages for a normal laborer in this time. So let's put it in American dollars. If somebody makes $60,000 a year, three months wages is approximately $15,000. Now, I don't know about for you, but $15,000 debt is nothing for me to sneeze at. But it isn't the GNP of the state of California either. You, there's, there's a scale of economics happening here. Three months worth of wages the whole amount of money the state of California makes in a whole year. There really is no comparison there, is there? Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, get this, they were greatly distressed. I mean, talk about understatement here. They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken, a uh, taken place. How do you even put that into categories? You, you were just forgiven an infinite debt, and someone owed you three months' worth of wages, and you missed the point. That's what they were thinking. That's what we ought 
to be thinking. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! Lord, spare us from that. Think about that for a moment. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now I have a question. My question is, what was the debt that that servant owed? Was it the original 10,000 talents? No. It's very important that we understand this. The debt that he now gets thrown into prison for is not the 10,000 talents. You can't bring that back up. It's already been forgiven. It's already been wiped out. What is it that he is now going to prison for? The, the debt he owed was forgiveness. The debt he owed was having mercy on his fellow servant. Verse 33 makes this clear. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Stop what you're thinking about right now. Stop and consider what is about to happen next. This is the most important verse you're going to hear tonight. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This absolutely no-nonsense warning echoes the absolutely no-nonsense warning we read two weeks ago. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus goes out of His way to explain in very poetic terms that should capture your heart, don't fail to forgive, because if you do, you will not be forgiven. And he says in Matthew 6 very clearly, don't fail to forgive, because if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And don't go too quickly to the nice, safe, Baptist answer, oh, once saved, always saved. Perhaps you're not saved. And if you're unwilling to forgive, that's pretty good evidence that you are not saved. Forgiveness is a decision about the future not a feeling about the past. I've designed these two sermons to work together. There's a lot that we didn't cover. But I want you to consider another story. I want you to consider a story with a very different ending 
than Jesus' story that we just read. On April 20th, 1999, two teenagers entered Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, armed to the teeth with weapons and absolutely unarmed spiritually. Those two teenagers murdered 15 and they wounded 21. In the following months, most of us in this room remember, there were a a hailstorm of theories of why and how the tragedy occurred. One man, the father of one of the murdered students and also the father of a student who had his two friends killed on either side of him, took three months leave from his job to travel the country and speak about not gun control, but forgiveness. This is something that sometimes we need to, to do over and over again until it takes, you know, until the grace of God is firmly there for us to, to let go. And I'm so glad that Craig has. Craig is truly forgiven and moved ahead with his life and chose to celebrate Rachel's life instead of the anger and the bitterness that we see with so many other people. For me personally, there's no way I could have, in my own strength, forgiven Eric and Dylan. I would have been mad at them for the rest of my life. As I said, forgiveness is a decision about the future, not a feeling about the past. How did Daryl, this man, Daryl Scott, father of Rachel Scott, and Craig Scott, his son, who he talks about here, survive this horrific tragedy? How did they view themselves in light of the horrors? Especially Craig, who had the blood of his two friends splashed on him. How did they survive these horrors and forgive? No, I'm not a strong person. I'm a very weak person, and I choose that weakness because I've learned a secret. Rachel learned too that God's grace is there when we choose to be weak and so yes I'm strong but it's in the strength of his grace not in my own strength this is to me so important is you need to acknowledge that you can't forgive within your own strength that's the first step of forgiveness and I, I have I had to say that God I cannot forgive Eric and Dylan and I confess that weakness but out of my weakness your strength is made perfect and when we choose to be weak, God is strong. Uh, but there's... He just said what I want to conclude with. You're not able to do it of your own. It takes the Holy Spirit coming to you and working in you and through you. But these are the tools. These are the means. And these are the commands and the promises that God gives us so that we can be free, that we can let go, that we can breathe the life-giving air that we talked about last week, free of bitterness, of trying to find our own revenge when God says Himself, I will take vengeance. I I will take care of all your debts. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to remember to trust You. Teach us, God, 
to rely on your promise. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And God, give us the grace to look forward because of what your Son did on the cross for me and for my brothers and sisters who trust the promises of God for them in Christ, that you will take care of all debts. Give us freedom so that we will truly be free. In Jesus' name, amen.